Hello and welcome to News Hour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service in London. I'm Tim Franks. Our top story this hour, how should the West deal with a resurgent and re-elected President Putin? Also on the programme, Britain and the European Union say they've made a decisive step in the UK's way out of the EU. We hear from the physicist who worked with Stephen Hawking on his final paper on taming the multiverse, the idea that there are many different universes. What does the theory have to say about our own universe? We are just in one of those worlds. And a good model of the Big Bang, a scientific model of the Big Bang, is a model which predicts features about our own universe. And as President Trump presents new policies to beat the opioid epidemic, we hear of a fresh approach in the courts. When you're in jail or when you're on the streets, you're... You're a number to correctional officers. You're a dog to drug dealers. You, you really don't have any value or self-worth. You don't have any sense of self at all. So when somebody looks at you and actually cares about what you're going through in your life, what your problems are, how can we help you, it really reminds you that deep inside there is a person. More on that in 45 minutes. Across much of the democratic world, there are two unwritten rules of elections. First... Even if you're the out-and-out front-runner, you play down your chances, insist there's no room for complacency, that you're scrapping for every vote your opponent could sneak in. The second is that if you're a national leader, you can expect your victory to be swiftly followed by congratulatory phone calls from your fellow world leaders, even if they're not your ideological soulmates. On both fronts, Sunday's presidential election in Russia broke the rules – In the words of one of the BBC's Moscow correspondents, Vladimir Putin is today basking in an election he could not lose. And around much of the globe, world leaders have taken their time, if they've bothered at all, to call Mr Putin and say well done. The unqualified congratulations came from Hungary, Turkey, Iran and Venezuela. For his part, President Putin was keen to sound emollient and strikingly romantic. But of course, not everything depends on us alone. Just as it is in love, both sides must be interested, otherwise there won't be any love. But we, for our part, will do our best to settle all the disputed issues with our partners through political and diplomatic means. But a member of Russia's opposition RPR Parnas party, Natalia Pelevna, told the BBC that it was precisely Mr Putin's tough stance on international issues that had helped him win the election. This is largely due to foreign policy. For the Russian people, it basically means that, you know, we're fighting against the Western enemy that is out to get Russia. People actually do believe that concept. And I think this is largely why Putin did get as much support as he did this time around, even though some votes may may have been rigged, but he does have quite a lot of support. And uh, we hear voices, and even I meet quite a few people that say, look, you know, the rest of the world is out to get us. We're up against everybody else, and Putin is the only leader that can, you know, maintain our country's sovereignty, etc., etc. What of the election itself? Europe's security organisation, the OSCE, sent observers to the poll... Ambassador Jan Peterson was their head of mission. From a legal and a technical aspect, these uh, elections were well administered. But, um, of course, then the question is about the context, and uh, no doubt that these elections took place in an overly controlled legal and, and political environment.
uh, continued pressure on uh, critical voices. So uh, I think we can say it is, uh, it's a mixed, uh, mixed picture. Were you able to go about and observe the election unhindered? Were you able to do your work with no problems? Yeah, I think we can say so. We had uh, quite a big group out today, 291 teams, uh, which is the biggest uh, ever, actually. And uh, we covered quite a lot of ground, because Russia is a huge country. But um, I think we can say that uh, we managed to do the work, uh, our work the way we wanted to do our work. What happens to your reports when you produce them? Does the Russian government have to answer the questions that you raise about what's not gone well in the election? Well, that is up to the Russian authorities. We um, uh, delivered this preliminary uh, statement to, today. So uh, now we will prepare the final report, which is uh, much more extensive, and will also include recommendations on, on uh, improvements. And then actually it's up to the Russian authorities to take it from there. But of course uh, it is public, it is out there, so it will be a factor in the public debate. The European Court of Human Rights ruled uh, some time ago that the main opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, should have been cleared of all the charges that were levelled against him, charges which meant that he was disbarred from standing in the election some people are saying that's very fundamental, that this major opposition figure wasn't on the ballot paper. Has the OSCE had anything to say about that? Well, we have something to say about uh, candidate uh, registration. And um, uh, our opinion is that uh, the criteria for candidate registration is not in accordance with the uh, international uh, criteria. Ambassador Jan Peterson, the head of the OSCE mission uh, for the presidential election in Russia. How should the outside world, and particularly the Western world, react to Mr Putin's re-election? Norbert Röttgen chairs the Influential Foreign Affairs Committee in the German Parliament. He's with the Chancellor, Angela Merkel's governing CDU party. Shortly before we came on air, we did get confirmation that belatedly Mrs Merkel had phoned Vladimir Putin to mark his victory. The question to Norbert Röttgen, what should she have said to him? She knows what she has to say. I would say, in a way, you have achieved a pinnacle uh, in your career. You are now for, have been in power for 18 years. Now you will stay for another six years. So do you only want to have a legacy by staying in power for at least longer than Leonid Brezhnev? Or is there something... Uh, of another legacy. And I'm and the West and the Europeans are ready to cooperate in something different, which would give you and your country a perspective beyond staying in power for so long time. Cooperate in what way? Cooperate means coming back, coming back to the acceptance uh, of the very fundamental principles and norms of interstate behavior, of the norms and principles of international law. Putin now has been successful politically, domestically, by challenging, by violating the very core of international relations and international norms. And this will eventually isolate the country and is not able to give any kind of perspective of modernization, of taking part in the international community.
But you will be aware that many people in Germany, across the West, are saying that ship has sailed. As you put it yourself, Russia has shown itself willing to violate norms. It's now time not to be optimistic and to offer a hand, but it's a time to hit back. I think it's both. We should always offer a hand for cooperation. We should not uh, take that hand back because it expresses how what our idea of, uh, of international cooperation is. And on the other side, yes, we have to continue our policy of non-acceptance. And we have to stand against the violation of law. We have to stay and stand against committing and perpetrating war crimes, incursions into other countries. And we have to rally close ranks and as a part of the international community, as Europe and the West, stand against this attack on peaceful coexistence between nation states. Right. So does that mean, in terms, fresh sanctions? It primarily means stick to our policy. But, so but with the greatest respect, I, I apologise for in- interrupting. You say continuity is important, stick yeah. to the policy that we're engaged in. But in the words of one of your colleagues in the European Parliament, Manfred Weber... Russia is at the moment waging a modern war against the West. The current policy is not working. The current policy is working. There is sometimes the assumption that you have to measure the success of a policy in a very short period of time. No, what is absolutely crucial in dealing with both Putin and Russia is the time factor. So it needs time. It needs patients. And what we have to convey to him is, we will not give in, we will not compromise on the norms, but we will stay together, close ranks and not accept what you are doing. I'm still finding it difficult to follow how um, you're saying this shouldn't uh, happen in a short time frame. But what we're seeing surely from Russia, or at least what the argument is, is that if you look at what happened with Crimea, if you look at what happened in eastern Ukraine, if you look at the allegations of these extraterritorial assassinations, this is a long-term pattern of behaviour. And so far, what the West has done is in no way curbed Russian behaviour. Yes, this is right. But this is not an, an aspect of measuring success or not success. Russia has opted for a fundamentally different political stance and posture towards the West. It's not sustainable at all. And the fundamental question is, do we stand against as uh, uh, the Western community or are we ready for compromise? And the debate is very much for compromising. I heavily and fundamentally oppose this approach. So continuity, stick to our policy is what is vital and we should not allow that a wedge is driven between and among us. I think unity and continuity of the Europeans and the West in general, this is what is decisive, and I think this is the core of our strength. So to be clear, when, for example, as they were quoted today in Der Spiegel, the German-Russian Trade Association says that we're looking forward in 2018 to as much as a 10% increase in trade between Germany and Russia, investment is going to increase on the ground in Russia. That's wrong. Where we have 
legal uh, uh, business relations, they happen and they are not eager, so they are going to happen and they may even increase. But it means also where we have sanctions, we will stick to the sanctions unless we are going to see a different political approach by Russia. But if Russia is, is so in, if Russia is so enfeebled as as you suggest it is, then you know Germany, Western Europe's biggest economy, in showing that its investment is going to go up, its trade is going to go up ten percent this year. I mean that's great news for Russia, isn't it? No, but I think we have to we have to pursue a rational policy, a principled policy. And you can't question and put into doubt our policy by looking at uh, the development of, of trade relations. Norbert Röttgen, the uh, influential Foreign Affairs Committee chair from the German Parliament. This is NewsHour. And coming up on the programme, what does the latest step in the Brexit negotiations between Britain and the European Union mean for businesses? You should never praise the day before the eve, but I think this partial political agreement uh, we have here today is certainly a very decent step uh, in the right direction. That's coming up in 15 minutes. Our headlines from the BBC Newsroom. President Trump has called for drug traffickers to face the death penalty as part of his plan to combat an epidemic of painkiller addiction in the United States. We'll be uh, looking at that story in 30 minutes. And in uh, just over 10 minutes... Uber suspending all tests of its self-driving cars after a woman was run down and killed in Arizona. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC in London. I'm Tim Franks. Facebook shares have fallen sharply today. They're currently down almost 7% in trading in New York. The social networking giant is facing some very pointed questions from politicians in the US and in Europe about its privacy rules. A former employee of the company Cambridge Analytica has alleged that millions of people had their personal data used for campaign purposes in the last US presidential election, data which had come from Facebook and which the company had then failed properly to inform its users about. Roger McNamee is the co-founder of Silver Lake Partners, the first private equity fund focused on the technology centre, and he was an early investor in Facebook. What does he make the affair? What has been revealed here is something people have suspected for a long time, which is that there have been bad actors who have gotten access to Facebook user profiles and that Facebook has done a terrible job of keeping track of what has happened. From what I understand, Facebook are insisting, firstly, that this was not a data breach, that people volunteered this information, and secondly, that this couldn't happen now, that the protocols have been changed. To the first issue, 270,000 people voluntarily took the personality test that was used to harvest all of the data. Other than the 270,000 people who signed up to take the test, none of the others was made aware that their data was being accessed in this manner, much less about the nature of how it was being used. This is a problem in many different dimensions, not the least of which is that Facebook had signed what is called a consent decree with the Federal Trade Commission in the United States that said that it was not allowed to have any 
use of user data without explicit permission from the users. So Facebook should have reported this immediately when it happened. They knew no later than 2015 that the data had been used improperly, and they waited until now to say anything publicly. So what should and politicians Facebook, on Capitol Hill do now? In the United States, we, we have a culture that abhors regulation. And I'm counting on the EU and the United Kingdom to act and, shall we say, defend users from the tyranny of these big data platforms. Am I right in saying that you were an early investor in Facebook? Oh, I was way more than an early investor. I first met Mark Zuckerberg in 2006. He was 22. He sought me out to get my advice on what was an existential crisis for the company. Yahoo was attempting to buy Facebook, and Mark did not want to sell, and everyone around him wanted to, and he needed to find a way that would allow him to keep the company independent. And I helped him do that. One but you don't did, still have investments with him? Oh, with I do still have an investment. No, no, right. no. I, I introduced Cheryl Sandberg to Mark. I helped to broker her going in there as a chief operating officer. I, it, Facebook remains the largest investment in my portfolio. Given my your response. long relationship with Facebook and given that you are still heavily invested in them, if you were to get a message to him now as a result of what you've learned over the last day or so, what would it be? It would be really simple. It would be drop everything and help the government understand what happened in 2016. Provide all of the data, everything, and explain to people that the only way to protect democracy when there are outside forces trying to suppress the vote is for every single person to vote in every election. That's super important. And then relative to the Cambridge Analytica and all of that, Facebook has to take the privacy of their users seriously. Roger McNamee, an early investor in Facebook, and he's uh, still got money invested in the company. Cambridge Analytica has, within the last couple of hours, issued a new statement denying inappropriate use of Facebook data. It said this Facebook data wasn't used by Cambridge Analytica as part of the services it provided to the Donald Trump presidential campaign. Personality-targeted advertising was not carried out for this client either. The theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking died a week ago, but he may yet have something new and hugely influential to say. People with very large brains around the world are coming through an as-yet unpublished paper Professor Hawking was involved with just before his death. It suggests ways in which we might be able to detect parallel universes. Hawking's co-author on the paper was the Belgian physicist Thomas Hertog. Our final paper is about uh, the multiverse. And so this is a new theory of the Big Bang, which um, we're hoping to test. And the multiverse is what, the existence of lots and lots of parallel universes? Yeah, you should think of the multiverse as parallel worlds, exactly. Some of these worlds are empty, others will be full of black holes, and yet others, perhaps rare worlds, will harbour stars and galaxies and life. And... The multiverse has been around for many years because any model of the Big Bang which we could come up with gave rise to a multiverse, to a multitude of worlds. And the problem has always been, well, given a multiverse, 
what does the theory have to say about our own universe? We are just in one of those worlds. And a good model of the Big Bang, a scientific model of the Big Bang, is a model which predicts features about our own universe. So you're saying it's, it, it, it has to be more plausible for the Big Bang to have created many universes as opposed to just one universe. I guess the next question is whether one can detect the existence of those multiverses. Is that also what your paper has looked at? Well, partly. The, 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 the main problem we set out to solve is that the multiverse was basically uncontrollable. It was the, the nightmare of the cosmologists. Because if the multiverse is too large and too gigantic and too varied, your theory doesn't say anything about our own universe. And so Hawking did not like this. Yet it's very difficult to avoid, as you say, it's very difficult to avoid any kind of multiverse. It's very hard to get a unique universe out of a model of the Big Bang. So you have to live with it. And you have to devise methods to, in a sense, to tame the multiverse, to control it, to transform it into a scientific testable framework. And that's what our paper is about. Can I ask you what it has been like to collaborate with Stephen Hawking? Because clearly the two of you were not just separated by working in different countries, but he, he was a profoundly right. disabled man. And I, I just wonder, obviously a brilliant mind, but what it was like to work alongside him. Well... Stephen and I met in 98, so 20 years ago. Uh, I became his doctoral student. And we just kept on collaborating. We really found each other around cosmology and the Big Bang. And we kept seeing each other every few months. We did not exchange so many emails, but we collaborated really by sitting next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, for hours and hours. And exchanging ideas, doing calculations. And so, in a sense, it became really intimate. We talked a lot in the 90s, and, and all the rest built upon that, in a way. We found each other and each other's language early on. And by the end, when communication became really difficult, I also had the feeling we didn't need many words to get our message across. And that was the Belgian physicist Thomas Hertog, a master of concision himself, talking about his uh, co-paper with Stephen Hawking. Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting The Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. We take a single topic in and around the news and we examine it in depth, one hour, one topic, every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast-changing world, search for The Real Story wherever you find Next your podcasts. Next on News progress on Brexit. First, the ride-sharing company Uber has said it's suspending self-driving car tests in all North American cities after a fatal accident. A 49-year-old woman was hit by a car and killed as she crossed a street in Arizona. It's thought to be the first time a self-driving car has been involved in a fatal pedestrian collision. The BBC's Joe Miller is in New York. 
What more do we know? Very little at uh, the moment. It really, the incident raises more questions than it answers. But what we do know is that yesterday evening around 10 p.m. in the city of Tempe in Arizona, a woman was walking across the road and crucially she was not on a pedestrian crossing when she was hit by a driverless car, one of Uber's test vehicles, which was in autonomous mode at the time, even though it did have a backup driver in the car, the police say. Uh, She was taken to hospital and she died a few few hours later. Um, That's all we know at present. And in terms uh, now of of where this goes, I mean, Uber says it's suspending uh, its tests. It's not the only company involved in uh, self-driving, testing self-driving cars. Um, Clearly, it's a shocking incident. Do you think it will have implications elsewhere? Absolutely. This is almost a moment of reckoning for the self-driving car industry because Silicon Valley has sort of silenced its critics um, and people who just feel a little bit uneasy about the concept of driverless cars by saying, look, these cars, they'll be safer than any vehicles that are driven by humans. That's the whole point. That's the raison d'etre of this of this technology. And while there's been other incidents in the past in cars turning over, cars, um, even um, uh, accidents involving other traffic, there has never been a fatality before and here we are where the, the, what was supposed to be unimaginable has actually happened so it's not just Uber that's going to have to worry about this, it's the in- industry as a whole uh, which has repeatedly claimed that such a thing should be unthinkable. And I suppose the other issue or one of the other issues Joe is that a, a lot of these companies because this is such uh, a new technology and a technology they're trying to sort of you know beat a beat a, a march on their on their rivals there's going to be a lot of pressure on Uber to share its its information Yes, absolutely. And not just pressure pressure from rivals, but pressure from authorities. We've already seen various politicians in different states uh, this morning say, look, this just proves that this industry needs to be regulated more. These cars should not be on regular roads in regular cities at the moment. It's, it's far too early for that. Um, and therefore, you know, we've, we've really seen an increase in pressure. And I think we're creeping towards a point where these cars will be regulated and the information, as you say, will be shared amongst not just uh, rival companies, but also authorities in cities across the world. And uh, just in a sentence, Joe, I presume several years still before we can expect um, self-driving cars to be widespread. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Uber said that these cars were going to be available next year. I think we're going to hear in the next few days some news on whether that actually will happen. The BBC's Joe Miller talking to me from New York. You're with the BBC World Service and live from London, this is NewsHour with me, Tim Franks. It's become one of the stock photo images of recent times. The minister leading Britain's Brexit negotiations, David Davis, smiling alongside the official leading the European Union's Brexit negotiations, Michel Barnier, however tense and unconstructive their most recent meeting seems to have been. But today, the grip and grin appeared rather more heartfelt. In the words of Mr Barnier, the two sides have taken a decisive step towards agreeing the terms of Britain's withdrawal. That step involves sorting out the almost two-year transition between formal withdrawal from the EU next year and a new permanent relationship. Our Europe correspondent, Damien Grammaticus, is in Brussels. Why were the two men looking so pleased with themselves? 
Well, I think, uh, Tim, in a word, because they have sort of passed this step where they have an outline agreement for what will happen after the UK formally quits the EU uh, in just over a year's time. And the UK was under real pressure because if you step back, that one year clock was going to start or is going to start ticking in nine days time at the end of March. Businesses in the UK had said they needed to know what was going to happen in a year's time or they would all start activating contingency plans, is what many had said. Uh, That could have been very economically damaging for the UK. So the UK was keen to try and sort out what was going to happen in the future. And there's an EU summit of EU leaders just in a couple of days time. Without this sort of agreement now, the EU leaders at that summit on Friday would not give the go ahead, I think, to talking about a future relationship. So for the UK, it gives a little bit of certainty that there is an outline, not all the detail, but an outline of this sort of standstill uh, status for two years where the UK can continue to participate in the EU's internal market even after it leaves. What are the big ticket issues that remain to be sorted out? Ireland uh, is the biggest ticket issue. Uh, So on the Irish uh, border, this is the how to avoid a new border, border controls being implemented between the Republic of Ireland in the south and Northern Ireland, part of the UK, after Britain leaves or the UK leaves. Now, the EU secured an agreement in December and repeated today by the UK government that in that final text will be a provision that If nothing else is found, the UK commits that Northern Ireland will be inside the EU's regulatory sphere, its customs union, its single market rules. Now that, uh, the EU says it sees no other way around that. The UK side, though, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, had said that that was unacceptable for any Prime Minister to accept. It's still in there. The UK side still agreed to it. But politically, she has a big problem because her allies, uh, who she relies on for support in Parliament from the Democratic Unionist Party uh, in Northern Ireland, have said they view that as uns- as uh, something that they would not support either. So a very difficult negotiation still at the heart of it there, but that is in the text. Are you able to say and weigh who has moved more in order to get to this point? Yes, very, very clearly, the United Kingdom has moved on almost all the major topics. So uh, the United Kingdom had had said at some point there'd been, uh, including ministers, saying they would not pay an exit bill. That's in this text, a a large set financial settlement to the EU. Uh, United Kingdom saying, uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, had said that EU citizens coming after next year would have reduced rights. The UK has now agreed to full rights through the two-year transition for EU citizens moving to the UK. Uh, Fishing grounds, the EU will continue to control fishing quotas for the time being. The UK will continue to accept EU rules but have no say on them. In many, many areas, the UK has swallowed what, just a few months ago, would have been unthinkable concessions. The BBC's Europe correspondent Damien Grammaticus in Brussels. What does the latest development mean for business? Marcus Breyer is the chief executive of the EU industry group Business Europe. You should never praise the day before the eve, but I think this partial political agreement we have here today is certainly a very decent step in the right direction. And is that because it proves that compromise is possible or is it actually more to do with the detail of the deal? 
The most important issue for business in the short term is to have more clarity and certainty on the transition period and transition agreement. Of course, also the future relationship is very important. And I think insofar, this political agreement of today is a very good step in the right direction under the condition that it will be positively received by the European Council by the end of the week, which we very much hope. This can be the basis for a number of companies to maybe postpone uh, their planned contingency procedures. And this is a good thing. Yeah, but it is postponed, isn't it? I mean, if there is no deal, then what everybody calls the cliff edge, in other words, Britain tipping messily out of the European Union. Yes, it won't happen in March 2019, but it could happen in December 2020. As I said, you should not praise uh, the day before the eve. For the time being, nothing is finally agreed, but it's a good step in the right direction. There is still questions which are open in the exit agreement, not least the Irish question, but also as far as the transition is concerned, I mean, dispute settlement mechanism, possible suspension of the agreement in case of breach and other things. And we hope that uh, further work will be done soon. But it provides for a certain clarity that within this transition agreement until the end of December 2020, all EU rules would continue to apply. So this is a good step in the direction of clarity. But you're right, of course, if no good deal for the future is found, this would only postpone the problem. But we need to do step by step. This is a step in the direction of more clarity. Even if all the outstanding issues are resolved, as you put it, and there is supposed to be agreement, I think, by the end of this year, pretty much, on what the new relationship should look like. There are business leaders I've seen quoted saying that the resulting two-year transition is not going to be anywhere near long enough. Well, obviously, it's a short period of time. But at the same time, I mean, we need to do step by step. Without any doubt, if uh, the red lines of the British government stay where they are, this would mean that uh, the future agreement, the future relationship would be defined by trade agreement. And even so, we from the business side would like it to be a very good trade agreement. Is there any way, given that, that you think that Brexit can be a success, can be a a net positive? Well, this is difficult to say. I think uh, uh, what we need to do is to make sure that, let's say, that the negative consequences will be as low as possible. So it's all about damage limitation? Well, I think it's for sure that the best opportunities you have within the single market and in the customs union. And then, of course, it is about uh, trying to keep negative consequences on the lowest level possible. This also applies, of course, to the transition period. To give you one example, the customs union means there's a possibility to continue to apply the free trade agreement with the rest of the world. The business community certainly would like the UK to be positively part of these free trade agreements with more, I think it's around about 750. But there will be further work necessary from British side, because there will be certainly a constructive uh, position from the European side. So all these will need to agree. And there's still a lot of work to do. Marcus Breyer, the chief executive of the EU industry group Business Europe. Sexual abuse and harassment are global problems. Movements such as Me Too and Time's Up have done much to draw attention to them. But in some conservative countries, such as the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan, many women are afraid to speak about their experience for fear of the shame it could bring on their families. In order to fight the stigma, activists there have launched a movement called Don't Be Silent. The BBC's Abdul Jalil Abdurasilov reports from Kazakhstan's biggest city, Almata. <laughs> Bitter words from women who are doing something extraordinary in Kazakhstan. They are talking in public 
about being raped. Some people in the audience wipe away tears as they listen. The women speaking at this forum belong to a growing movement called Don't Be Silent, a first for Kazakh society which is dominated by traditional Muslim values. Dina Smilova, a former producer of children's music shows, is one of the founders. In 2016, I wrote a Facebook post about how I was raped when I was young and never did anything about it. That post went viral. More than 200 people replied, telling their own stories. I read them and I cried. It was so hard to read them, horrifying stories, and people suggested we start a movement. Now, Dina and other activists give talks and organize seminars for students and law enforcement agencies. And they provide legal advice. Dina says the aim is to break the taboo in Kazakhstan that it is shameful to talk about rape. Society imposed a concept of shame on us that the victim is always dirty, not the rapist. We're trying to change people's attitude. We say it's not shameful to be raped. It's shameful to be a rapist. That's why we go public, showing our faces, saying that we're not ashamed. They should be ashamed. Saina Raisava nearly breaks down as she speaks about being raped by two men last year. To escape the torture... She jumped out of a third-floor window. She survived. After regaining consciousness, the first thing I thought of was to commit suicide. I thought I wouldn't be able to live with this. When Raisa saw that there was no progress in the criminal case she brought and the rapists could go unpunished, she decided to go public. I had to fight, not only with law enforcement agencies, but also with myself and with my relatives, because they were shocked. They didn't understand. It is hard for victims to speak up, not just because it can ruin their families. It can be dangerous too. We are now going to a place where one of the victims is hiding because she accused an intentional person in her town of raping her and now she is concerned for her safety and that's why she's hiding. Elena Ivanova is 19. Learning how to play guitar is her solace now. She used to live with her grandmother, but felt she had to leave her home. She's afraid that the man she claims raped her may use his power to jail her for libel. I'm afraid to be there. This man is very influential, very rich. It's very obvious that law enforcement agencies work for him. They offer money, they constantly summon me for questioning. It's like he was the victim and I was the criminal. Police deny any wrongdoing in the investigation into Yelena's allegations. They say it didn't go to trial due to lack of evidence. But Yelena wants to bring public attention to her case 
and agreed for her real name to be used. It was very difficult to tell everyone about my story. I just had a choice to live or not to live, to fight or wait for something to happen to me. And when you're in such despair, you have to speak up, make a video, ask for help. Ileana Ilanova, ending that report from Kazakhstan by the BBC's Abdul Jalil Abdurasolov. This is NewsHour. A reminder of our top story this hour. President Putin has said he's open to constructive dialogue with other countries after being re-elected to lead Russia for another six years. Speaking to NewsHour, Norbert Röttgen, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the German Parliament, said that the Russian president should rethink his relationship with the international community. Putin now has been successful politically, domestically, by challenging, by violating the very core of international relations and international norms. And this will eventually isolate the country and is not able to give any kind of perspective of modernization, of taking part in the international community. One other headline, President Trump has called for drug traffickers to face the death penalty. More on that in a moment. This is NewsHour from the BBC. President Trump says he wants to bring in tougher penalties for drug traffickers, including the death penalty, to tackle what he calls the scourge of drug addiction in the US. Speaking in the state of New Hampshire, Mr Trump said that dealers kill thousands of people and their punishment should reflect that. If we don't get tough on the drug dealers, we're wasting our time. Just remember that. We're wasting our time. And that toughness includes the death penalty. Professor Douglas Berman is a law professor at Ohio State University and a specialist on criminal sentencing and capital punishment. What does he make of the idea of the death penalty for drug traffickers? I was not surprised in that audience there to hear his ideas about uh, dealing with what has been a truly terrible epidemic here in the United States, that there was a lot of applause because, uh, you know, in theory, talking about getting tough uh, can often, you know, be popular. It sort of fits with his populist creed. But uh, in practice, uh, it really doesn't make an awful lot of sense. There's uh, some constitutional questions uh, about whether even the Supreme Court's current jurisprudence around our Eighth Amendment would allow seeking the death penalty simply for uh, drug dealing, drug trafficking, as he was suggesting. Uh, And even if that could be overcome from a policy perspective, it's not clear at all that it would achieve the kind of deterrent effect uh, that uh, I think he hopes to achieve. The, the research shows strongly across you know a number of uh, studies that it's the swiftness and certainty of a punishment rather than its severity that really has an impact. And the death penalty in the United States uh, is never swift and never certain because of legal challenges and other realities about its administration. Well, as I mentioned, uh, it was one of a string of suggestions that Mr. Trump had for how to beat the opioid epidemic. Um, one of them was to try and slash the number of prescriptions for opioids. What did you think of that? Uh, I, I think that's a, a more encouraging and likely to be a more useful uh, project. The evidence shows that uh, an awful lot of people ended up getting hooked on opioids through prescriptions, either uh, those that they got themselves for a condition that that perhaps you know wasn't well treated with opioids or were were overprescribed, 
or uh, you know got them from a friend uh, because there were so many opiates in circulation and uh, there have been efforts to restrict supply that um, the, the evidence is somewhat mixed but that that uh, seems to be attacking one of the sources of the problem rather than um, a criminal justice approach that in other settings hasn't proved historically effective. If this is as big a public health emergency as President Trump, and I mean, let's face it, lots of other people have said for some time, what's the secret to unlocking money to fight it? Uh, I'm I'm not sure there is a secret. Part of it has to be a a real commitment to a range of of evidence-based alternatives. And one uh, approach that I think the president today even spoke about uh, possibly jumping in on is is suing the opiate manufacturers uh, who have you know, played a role and have profited uh, from the widespread availability and prescribing of these drugs. And that's something that's been tried successfully in the tobacco arena where there was ultimately a settlement uh, of large amount of dollars that got funneled into uh, smoking cessation programs and other uh, public health initiatives that continue to bear fruit. And so uh, I think it's going to have to be a kind of a multi-front approach. And the resources are uh, a huge part of that, though, you know, you can look at it in a, in a sort of broader scope. We still spend in the United States uh, far more money on criminal justice interdiction efforts than we do on treatment options. Uh, and so there's a lot more that can be done even in reallocating existing resources away from what seem to be less effective uh, ways of dealing with the problem to more effective ones. Professor Douglas Berman from Ohio State University. The White House says that overdose deaths from the opioid epidemic are equal to a September the 11th every three weeks. The problem is so bad that it's the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50. It's not just destroying lives and families, it's also proving enormously trying for the nation's criminal justice system. As Professor Berman was saying, now a new judicial approach to the issue in the northern city of Buffalo could be a model for the rest of the nation. From Buffalo, the BBC's Neda Torfik has this report from the country's first opioid court. All right. Good morning. Part 12 of Buffalo City Court is now in session. The Honorable Craig D. Hanna presiding. Thank you. Please be seated. Judge Craig Hanna takes a special interest in the people that come through his courtroom. So what's going on? Why are you missing these calls? I honestly don't know. He presides over the nation's first opioid court, set up 10 months ago with a grant from the federal government. This new experiment might just be America's best new defense against its deadliest drug crisis. When offenders who appear in court are addicts, Judge Hanna immediately puts their case on hold. All right, I'll release you today and I need you to report here tomorrow so we can go over everything about your treatment, okay? No longer viewed as criminals, they are given help, support, and a chance to have their charges dropped or reduced. I think we've made a tremendous mistake in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s were just locking people up. It didn't work. And we're not going to make that same mistake now because we have the research and the data to show that you cannot lock up an addiction because the second they walk out of jail, they're going to fiend for that substance that they had. Here, I'll, I'll have this one and I'll make the next one for you. Carly Mauer has been clean and back home with her father since starting the program two months ago. She was arrested for drug possession and used prescription pills and heroin for over a decade. But finally, she feels like herself again. When you're in jail or when you're on the streets, you're, you're a number to correctional officers. You're a dog to drug dealers. You, you really don't have any value or self-worth. You don't have any sense of self at all. So when somebody looks at you and actually cares about what you're going through in your life, what your problems are, how can we help you, 
it really reminds you that deep inside there is a person, you know, that, that needs and deserves love. Carly doesn't have any illusions about how difficult it will be to remain clean. Heroin has had a powerful hold over her. Her father, Bruce, once found her lifeless body in the bathroom of their home. With this court, I've never seen her in a better state of mind. But I just fear it's that she's on a real regiment. She has to go to court. That she's being told to do it by a judge superior. How was your weekend? Um, my weekend was really great. I got to spend some time with my boyfriend, my family. Okay, well, that's good. Carly is trying to develop a plan for the day when she no longer has to check in with the court. She hopes to have a career in criminal justice, just like Judge Hanna, himself a recovering addict. The only difference between me and the individuals you saw today is one thing, is time. Once they have as much time clean as I have, then they can accomplish anything in life. Judge Hannah, ending that report from Neda Torfik in Buffalo, upstate New York. That's it from this edition of News Hour from me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London. Thank you very much for your company. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com/podcasts.